Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 183 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I spoke with a wonderful marine biologist about the multifunctional, multicolored, multi-armed aliens of the ocean, octopuses. We discuss octopus handshakes, donut brains, Swiss army mouths, goat eyes, toxic friendships, and Eiffel Towers. You're not going to want to miss any of it. But before we get into the episode, I have just a couple of really quick programming notes. First of all, we are getting ready for our annual listener submission episode. So if you have any questions for me and Christian that you'd like us to answer, or stories about the way that the podcast has had an impact on your life or how you've connected with the content, anything that you'd like us to share, please email those into me ellen at just the zoo of us.com by Saturday, March 18th, preferably with the words special episode in the subject line so that we can read them on the show. My second small programming note is that our releases over the next few weeks will be a little different from usual since we are going to be traveling and also preparing for some big, exciting things towards the end of this month. There will be another guest episode next week, and the following week will actually be a feed drop of a guest appearance that I made on another podcast that I think y'all will really enjoy hearing. So just a heads up that episodes will look a little different temporarily during March, but I am confident that you will love them and be just as thrilled as I am about what's coming. Anyway, that's that. Without further ado, Just the Zoo of Us presents Octopuses with Chelsea Bennis. Friends, this is Ellen Weatherford with your favorite animal review podcast, Just the Zoo of Us. I'm so excited this week to be talking to a new friend. This is Chelsea Bennis. Say hi, Chelsea. Hi, everyone. What are your pronouns real quick? My pronouns are she and her. Thank you. And for those of you who are listening who are new to you, I would love it if you could let our friends know. How did you get into the really cool work that you do with creatures that live in the ocean? Right. So I'm originally from Ohio, so very, very far from the ocean. Small town in Ohio, but my small high school actually had a marine biology course. And I grew up right on the water, so I've always been connected to the water. I took the marine biology course, and I fell in love with the animals of the ocean. How could you not? <laughs> I know. And I was really attracted to their bright colors and their behaviors and wondering why they did these unique, interesting behaviors and had these really bright colors. And so I dove into a research project in high school looking at clownfish, of course, who doesn't love the clownfish. <laughs> was this pre or post Finding Nemo? This was pre Finding Nemo. So you were all like an original fan. <laughs> yeah, I was really excited after I did the research, learned about the clownfish and the sea anemone and the symbiotic relationship. Then I got to see Finding Nemo and learn all about it. Did that affect your enjoyment of the movie? A little bit, you know. Uh, <laughs> Disney does a great job, but there were certain things that were not as accurate, scientifically accurate as could be. But hey, I still enjoyed it. It's, it's clownfish representation. Yeah. And so after I took the marine biology course 
in high school, I thought, wow, I want to be a marine biologist. And that just stuck with me um, throughout my high school and my college careers. But I didn't dive into, no pun intended, marine biology right away. After learning about the clownfish in high school, I decided to keep moving forward in the sciences and did my undergraduate degree at the Ohio State University. I did freshwater sciences. And after that, I decided that I still wanted to go to the ocean and do marine biology. And so I did several marine science internships. And that's when I was introduced to the animal that I now focus on for my research is the octopus. But just to kind of go back a little bit, I looked at different cephalopods. So cephalopods being the group of animals, including nautilus, squid, cuttlefish, and octopus. And I figured I needed to do these internships because I only had freshwater experience and I needed to get more experience in the saltwater world. And so I did these marine internships before I went to graduate school. And so I was introduced to cephalopods at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. So I did a little bit of traveling as well. I bounced around after after Ohio. I went down to Florida, did some internships. I went back Woo-hoo. up. Yeah, I went back up north to the Woods Hole, Massachusetts at the Marine Biological Laboratory and did internships as well. And like I mentioned, that's where I was introduced to uh, probably my favorite animal, the octopus. I started with cuttlefish and their behavior and their amazing camouflage, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Love cuttlefish. Yes. And then I moved to squid and I did squid behavior. And after I gained that experience in uh, marine science, I decided, okay, I've gained the experience. I'm ready to go to graduate school. So back down to Florida, I went. (laughs) <laughs> didn't, didn't leave for long, and I did my master's and PhD at Florida Atlantic University. And for my PhD is when I went back to the cephalopods and did octopus behavior, and that's where I have been ever since. What a journey. <laughs> yes, yes, quite the journey. Uh, gained lots of experience, and it's been an amazing time. Did you see a lot of common threads between the different like cephalopods that you studied if you're looking at their behavior? Did you see like certain things that they had in common? Yes, many cephalopods, if not all, have very complex behavior. And that was a common thread. These are very intelligent invertebrates. However, the behaviors differed or they varied because of where these animals live. And so cuttlefish and octopus very similar um, because they both live on the bottom or they're called benthic animals versus squid where they're swimming in the water column. So you do have some variation in their behaviors depending on their environment, but also very, you know, overall common thread, complex behaviors. Yeah, I I guess I hadn't really thought of that. But that that makes a lot of sense because the squids are kind of meant more for like jetting around, you know, they're kind of like darting through the water, whereas the octopus and the cuttlefish are like, I'm gonna chill down here. (laughs) Yes. And also depending on their environment, you know, they have different adaptations. Um, one being their color changing skin or their camouflage. You have uh, octopus and cuttlefish living in a variety of environments like coral reefs, uh, seagrass beds, you know, rock and rubble areas. And so they're camouflaging to different environments as well. So, you know, squids can change color as well, but I'd say cuttlefish and octopuses are masters of disguise. 
it's mind blowing to how quickly they do it. It's like you almost can't believe your eyes. You're like, what, what, what happened? <laughs> yes, it happens in less than one second. And so they are changing the color of their skin. Not only the color, but these different colors can make up different skin patterns. So they can do different skin patterns. They can do different skin textures. So they can raise their skin so it looks bumpy or spiky, or they can make it smooth. So depending on their environment or what they're trying to camouflage within their environment, they can do that. Just to, to back up for just one second, because you mentioned that with your PhD, you studied octopus behavior. Just out of curiosity, what, what types of octopus did you study? So I'm located in, in South Florida still, and I still work at Florida Atlantic University. And in Florida, we have many, many different species of octopus. The two species that I study are the common octopus, octopus vulgaris, and the Atlantic longarm octopus. And the scientific name is Macrotritopus philippi. So those are the two species I study in a shallow water lagoon in South Florida. And octopuses are solitary animals. They don't live near each other. They like to live by themselves and they do their own thing. However, in the South Florida lagoon, these two species or types of octopus, they were abundant and they were living really close to each other. And so I thought, hmm, this is different. How are these two octopuses living so close to each other or coexisting without competing or fighting with each other for different resources? And so this is a big question of how, you know, species coexistence, how are they coexisting, not competing for resources? And I can answer lots of different animal behavior questions with this, you know, tying it into the ecology or the environment that the octopuses are in. So through several years, I looked at both species. I looked at their habitats, where they lived spatially, and also what they made their homes or their dens out of. I also looked at their food that they ate. I looked at their activity times. So if they're coming out at different times of the day. So think of it as if you come out at a different time of the day, you're less likely to see that person or another octopus. And so you avoid that interference or that competition. And also looking at their foraging behaviors. So I kind of chipped away at all these research questions to figure out how these two species differed and the answers to how they're able to coexist, you know, and be what I like to say, underwater neighbors. This, so this wasn't just a, a big spring break party oh. that everyone decided to just come together and have no, a great time. <laughs> no, no, I did this. I did this study for about four years. However, you might think of it as kind of like a spring break party because the octopuses would come and go oh. out of this lagoon. So this lagoon is connected to, to the open ocean. And so the number or the abundance of octopuses would change. And it was during the springtime where I would see a lot of juvenile octopuses in this lagoon starting to pop up. So it could be a nursery area, very important oh. for octopuses to, to grow up. That's true. It can be kind of rough on a soft little guy. Yes. It's a big, scary ocean for a little soft fella. Big, scary ocean, soft animal, and since it is soft, squishy, a little ball of protein, a lot of predators like to eat it as a food source. So you've got to be quick. You've got to find, you know, a safe area as a small octopus and also an area with good food and, you know, having those superpowers or adaptations to, to camouflage or to, to trick your predators, not to thinking that you're an octopus. 
Well, that's kind of a perfect uh, segue into our first rating that we give for our animals, for our octopus friends. And for the first category that we rate animals on is effectiveness. So this is physical adaptations, things they have built into their body, tools they have in their kit that let them survive and thrive, accomplish their goals, basically. So this is a octopus is a predatory animal, right? So things that they maybe have that help them catch their prey. Also things that they have that let them not become prey themselves, which is helpful for not becoming dead. What do you what do you give octopuses out of 10 for effectiveness? For effectiveness, I give octopuses a 10 out of 10. For sure. They, yes. You know, I'm a, might be biased, <laughs> but I'm a big fan of the octopus. And they have so many adaptations or superpowers to meet their goals. Main goal, and I think a main goal of all animals is survive, thrive, reproduction, pass on, you know, your genes to make it. <laughs> yeah, to make it. And so to kind of go down, this is a very long list of adaptations, okay. <laughs> but it's super cool. I could be here all day talking about the different, you know, tools and adaptations octopuses have. I think I'll start first with their brain. They're a large brain. Oh. You know, I previously mentioned that they have complex behaviors and they're able to have these complex behaviors and survive due to their large brain. Octopuses have around 500 million neurons. Those are brain cells, and that's about on the same same level as a dog or cat. Okay, I was going to ask, like, what does that mean? Is that a lot? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a lot, especially for an invertebrate, an animal without a backbone. So they have this really big brain. Um, however, that big brain, that central brain doesn't have most of the neurons. Sounds kind of weird because that's where a lot of our neurons are, right? Right. And so 500 million neurons, two thirds of those neurons are distributed throughout the octopus's body through oh. its arms and other places. And that just goes to show you how important the arms are to an octopus. Remember, an octopus lives on the bottom. It's a benthic animal. And so its arms explore the environment. Their arms are aligned with hundreds of suckers, about 200 suckers on each arm. That gives you 1,600 suckers. You know, when you think of suckers, you think of them just being used to... um, hold on to a structure or something. Sure. Yeah, grippies. Yeah, however, these suckers also can not only touch and kind of feel an object, they also taste. Oh, fun. <laughs> yeah, so they can reach out and touch and taste their environment. So that's very important for, you know, understanding where you are in your environment and if there is prey, you know, to catch and eat or if there's maybe another octopus around, they do what I like to call an octopus handshake to see <laughs> if it's the same species or if it's a different species, if they're interested in something or if they're not. So this large brain and the neurons that are throughout the octopus kind of like lay the groundwork for everything that they do. 
That is a lot of sensory input. <laughs> Lots of sensory input. Yes. I would be so overwhelmed if I had taste buds in my fingers. Can you imagine if you tasted everything you touched with your hands? Right. And if you think about it, they have more taste buds on a single sucker than we do on our tongue. So so they're getting like a concentrated. Yeah, I think super tasters is an understatement. Or, and so they've got to figure out what to do with this information. However, it's just not the arms that are taking in the information, you know, about the environment. It's also the octopus's complex eyes. Their eyes sit on the sides of their heads and they have, I don't know if you've ever looked at a photo of an octopus and have seen their pupils. They're funky. Yes. So our pupils are <laughs> round. Their pupils are rectangular. And so it gives them a panoramic vision or 360 degree vision. I like to use the example of if you take out your phone and you, you know, open up your camera and you click on the panoramic setting and you can take that really long shot of it could be a landscape. This is what an octopus sees. You know, it can see all around it. And that is because, remember, an octopus doesn't have an external shell to protect it. It's a squishy ball of protein that everything <laughs> wants to eat. And so it uses its panoramic vision to look for food and to also make sure there's no predators around. And so what an octopus will do when it's sitting in its den and it's hungry and needs to go out and forage, it says, all right, well, let me kind of sit up or stand up tall, scan the environment. Mm. And once I know it's safe, I'm going to go out and forage and feed, you know, visually with my eyes, but also explore the environment with its arms and suckers. The eyes remind me of a goat. They have yes, like goat ex eyes. Yes, exactly. This isn't, you know, specific to the octopus. And the octopus has, you know, those rectangular pupils that you also see in other animals as well for those purposes of looking for predators. But the fact that they both evolved the same eyes, despite being like not even a little bit related to each other, is just really, really cool to me, I think. I, like when you look at like convergent evolution of eyeballs, mm -hmm. that is the wildest thing in the world to me. Yes, exactly. You know, and very similar, you know, they have, they have excellent vision. Their eyes look very similar to ours, minus the pupil. However, they do not have a blind spot in, in the back of their eye like we do. And also, they do not have the three pigments like we do as well. They have only one pigment, so they're thought to be colorblind. Oh. Almost, if not all of them. So there are a few species that they have found multiple, you know, pigments in like the firefly squid that can see colors. However, they still think that octopuses are colorblind and that's just amazing to think about is, wait a second, like you possibly can't see in color. However, you are matching the background and texture and everything. True. Exactly. And so they're, you know, amazing animals. I guess it would make sense that they wouldn't necessarily need to prioritize being able to see a wide range of color if they're living at the bottom of the ocean where probably not a lot of not all of the visible spectrum of light is like making it down there so maybe they wouldn't be able to see the color anyway even if they had the right eyes for it yeah but there are octopus species that live in very shallow waters and that's another cool thing about octopuses is that there's over 300 species of octopus and they live in a wide range of environments this can be from tide pools 
that are very, very shallow to shallow coral reefs, to the seagrass beds, all the way down to um, deep seas, miles under you know the, the surface of the water and also in polar regions. So it's amazing, you know, I've only listed a few of their superpowers or their adaptations, but depending on their environment, they also have these specialized adaptations, you know, for where they live as well. I think a superpower of the octopuses is their, I don't know if there's a word for this, but their squeezability, Mm, (laughs) like like collapsibility, you know? Absolutely. Yes. It's, they're like a fluid that just like molds to whatever shape they need to get into. It's wild. Yes. And that definitely helps for, it could be finding prey or from hiding from predators And so they're able to do this, be squishy and fit into all these and squeeze through these tiny places because they do not have a rigid skeleton like we do, right? It'd be pretty hard for us to fit through a tiny hole. (laughs) I got all these bones. I can't do it. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I like to say no bones, no problem. They (laughs) don't have any bones. They can fit into these tiny areas where there's no predators. And this is because uh, they have what's called muscular hydrostats. And so, like I've been mentioning, they're a big ball of protein. Well, they're a lot of muscle. And so not only are they super strong, these muscular hydrostats or these different types of animals also help with support. And so the one of the hard structures in the octopus is its beak, very similar to its bird beak. And so usually an octopus can fit through a tiny space as long as it's bigger than its beak. And so these spaces can be very, very tiny. And the beak is not that big. It's, no, it, no, it's not. <laughs> so typically, like when you when you just look at an octopus, you're usually seeing an octopus from above, unless you're like in an aquarium when the octopus is stuck on the glass, and then you get a really good view of the bottom. But like you usually don't get to see the beak. No. So you for don't. somebody that's like not super familiar with octopus, maybe they haven't seen them a lot. Where do you? Where's the beak? For an octopus, so I'll I'll start with the eyes since those are pretty obvious on on the octopus. You have the eyes that are on the octopus's head. And so behind the head is kind of like that oval bulbous sac. That's called the mantle. The bag. (laughs) Yes. It looks like a Santa's bag with all the gifts in it. Yes, yes. I love that. I think I need to start I need to start using that description. (laughs) And that's where all the important organs are located. You have the gills, the ink sac, the stomach, the hearts. Said that in plural, that's another cool superpower. Octopuses have three hearts. They have two gill hearts and one main heart that pumps the oxygenated blood through the rest of the body. And so all the important organs in the mantle. So you've got the mantle in the back attached to the octopus's head. And then from the head, you see that's kind of where all the arms go out from. So where all the arms meet, we kind of, we call that the crown of arms or the arm crown. And so right in the middle of the arm crown underneath the octopus. So if you kind of picked up an octopus by its head, I do not recommend Don't do that. Getting, don't do this. <laughs> I do They're this. Soft. With, I do this with my stuffed animal, <laughs> and I gently <laughs> handle octopuses for for research. So, imagine holding an octopus, or you can do it with your octopus stuffed animal. You flip it upside down, and in that middle of that arm crown, that's where the mouth is. And so, the octopus's mouth inside there is where the beak is. 
And octopuses have a lot of strange mouth parts. It's a mess of a mouth. <laughs> it is, and it's really, really cool. I like to I like to call it the stranger things. You know, they have strange, oh, yeah. strange mouth parts. And so octopuses, they have lips. Mm. I don't know about that. <laughs> I know. That's certain things you really never you really never think about. So they have mouth, they have lips. Inside their mouth, they have this beak, like a bird beak. And so after, you can imagine, octopuses latch onto their prey using their really strong arms. And then they move that prey towards the mouth using their suckers. They can hold onto the prey with the beak. Or since the beak is super strong, they can crush that prey with the beak. And then to chew the prey even more, they have what's called a radula. Kind of think of a cat tongue but I think way cooler. <laughs> and so the radula is like this ribbon-like tongue and it has sharp teeth that line it. They're in rows of seven. And so when the, when the radula kind of uh, extends, the teeth will stick straight up. And so these are really tiny teeth on this radula that you can imagine. Imagine the thickness of a piece of paper. That's how thick these teeth are. So they're really, really tiny, but they're really, really sharp because they have mm. to shred this food. And so octopuses love crabs. They love clams. Um, they love snails. And so they've got to shred up this food into really tiny pieces. And so they do this by crushing it with their beak and then chewing it with their radula teeth. When you said the radula, that reminded me of where I've heard that word before, which is in talking about snails. Yes. I believe a snail has a similar structure, right? Absolutely. And so octopuses and cephalopods belong to the broader group of animals in the phylum mollusca. And that's where snails belong. So snails, clams, gastropods, they're all relatives. And they share these common characteristics. One being the mantle, another being the muscular foot. Most of them have the shell, except the octopus, and the radula. I feel like the nautilus looks like the transition between the snail and the octopus. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So that's one way to chew your food with the radula to break it down. And that's because when the octopus, I guess, chews or swallows its food down the esophagus, it has to make sure it's really small because the brain of the octopus actually wraps around the esophagus. We like to say that the octopus has a donut brain. Oh, wow. Yep, it has a top and a bottom brain. And so the esophagus runs right through it, kind of like right through where the, the donut hole. Wow. So you, can't, you can't have any large food items because you could damage your brain. <laughs> oh, that's it's, not ideal. <laughs> yeah, not ideal. So you got to chew your food really good. And octopuses also have really cool saliva or spit. And so they have enzymes in their saliva that help break this food, start to digest the food. And I like to kind of think of it as maybe crab soup. <laughs> Which so, is delicious, by the way. I, I know. Who doesn't love <laughs> crab or crab soup? They're living large. What also is cool about the saliva is that it has toxins in it. And a really popular toxin... It's called cephalotoxin, and what that does is it paralyzes the prey and also breaks it down. And that kind of leads me into another stranger thing or a strange mouth part. So I mentioned the beak and the octopus crushing the clam shell 
or a snail shell with that beak. Well, if the shell is too hard or that exoskeleton of the animal is too hard or thick, what the octopus will do is it will drill a hole in the shell and inject that saliva with that cephalotoxin to paralyze the animal. Wow. So it's like a tiny drill called the salivaria papilla. This They're nonstop. Yes. <laughs> yes. When I say they've got a lot of tools, they've, they've got a lot of tools. They have a Swiss army mouth. Yeah. And that's, I think that's my, my new, I guess, analogy that I like to use is octopuses, the Swiss army knife of the sea. <laughs> you can see there's a, a lot of different mouth parts and we've just, we've just covered the mouth, right? <laughs> we haven't covered everything else that the octopus can do. Have you ever seen like in a cartoon when uh, the main character is usually in some sort of peril and uh, is often being dragged towards maybe the the villain has like a secret lair where they're being dragged towards like a hole that has like chainsaws and like swinging axes and drills and like everything that's like, you know, this person is going to get absolutely obliterated if they fall through. So it like creates tension, right? It's like, oh, how are they going to get out of this so they don't fall into this pit of death? That must be what like anything feels like if it's caught by an octopus <laughs> that is just being pulled towards like chainsaws and swinging axes. Because <laughs> you're going to get drilled into and injected with poison. You're going to get crushed by a sharp beak and then you're going to get scraped by this like sandpaper. Yes. <laughs> so it's shredded to bits. So it's like you every possible thing, every pain that could befall you is going to happen <laughs> to you in this octopus's mouth. <laughs> Hey there, we are going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of the other shows on the MaxFun Network. When we get back, we're going to rate ingenuity and aesthetics for octopuses, so stick around. If you have trouble falling asleep, try sleeping with celebrities. Tell me about your view of, of succulents. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan. It's a different kind of sleep podcast. There are some real benefits to parking illegally. Featuring remarkable guests and unremarkable topics. There's two Orlando airports. From the creator of Depression Mode with John Moe, it's Sleeping with Celebrities. Every week on Maximum Fun. Nighty-night sleepyheads. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say Bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week for My Brother, My Brother, and Me. So you were talking about, you know, how incredible their brain is, donut-shaped. I had no idea. Never heard that before. Incredible. Uh, but clearly, it's extremely efficient. It's well-made because, like you said, 
they use it to do some incredible things. So I would love to talk about some of the incredible things that octopuses are able to do with their brain uh, with the next category that we rate animals on, which is ingenuity, behavioral adaptations, things the animal is doing with their body uh, to solve problems that they face, or you know maybe strategies that they use or implement. I know octopuses are known to do things like use tools and and use their environment around them to their advantage. So what do you, I, I mean, I feel like we've already uh, shown our hand a little bit, but what do you give octopuses out of 10 for ingenuity? 10 out of 10. Surprise, surprise. Wow, <laughs> who would have thought? I think this is going to be a 10 out of 10 for everything for me just because <laughs> of fair. these, um, these amazing animals. <laughs> It all goes back to, you know, their goal of surviving and what they need to do to survive. So they have evolved to these large brains since they have this, this squishy outer body. They have to make sure that they can survive. And so when they're out foraging, they have to make sure that they are efficient and they do this quickly. They go to an area where there's food resources, but more importantly, they have to get back to their den or their home and avoid predators. And so their spatial awareness or spatial memory is amazing. You know, they definitely look at landmarks just like we do to make sure we know where we're at. But if they do see a predator out in the wild, they don't follow those landmarks back, but they will directly just swim directly back a beeline to their home because they know that they need to get there quickly to avoid that predator. So spatial awareness and that spatial memory is very, very important for getting back to your home. Also for remembering where there's a, a good food source as well to eat. Octopuses grow super fast, so they need to know where where the food is at. Yeah, it's a kind of a condensed timeline for octopuses, right? It is. And so they are relatively short-lived. Most of them would be one to two years or less. Just to give you another example, the giant Pacific octopus is the largest or biggest octopus. It can grow nine to 16 feet, so about the length of your average car, and weigh around 200 to 300 pounds. So it gets this size in less than five years because their lifespan is around five years and it's usually shorter in the wild. So for a very large animal, it's growing super fast to get to that size. So it needs to eat a lot of food. (laughs) What an ephemeral existence to pack so much experience and so much life into such a short amount of time. Because like, I'm imagining that, you know, they're getting all of the sensory input. So they're just having a very like sort of heightened experience of life because they're so like hyper aware of everything going on around them. And to just pack all of that into a very short lifespan is like, what a little like lightning in a bottle sort of existence. Yeah. Talking more about their behavior. I know I briefly touched on camouflage, but there's different types of camouflage that do involve not only changing their skin color and their skin texture, but also using different postures. So two different types of camouflage is mimicry. So when an octopus, it mimics another animal. And you may have seen this in photos or on the TV or online when the mimic octopus or this other animal called Wonder Puss. Yeah. <laughs> so they will they will mimic other animals, and these animals are usually poisonous animals in their environment. So they'll mimic sea snakes, 
lionfish or flatfish or flounder. To, so predators mistaken them for a poisonous animal and they do not eat them because they don't look like an octopus. So mimicry is one amazing behavior that they do. Another one is called masquerade. And so they can look <laughs> like a different object. And so they can look like seaweed or algae or maybe sponge. And they have a really cool trick. We call it the moving rock trick. When an octopus is out in a sandy area, there might be some rocks around that area as well, but they have to get from point A to point B, and there's not much protection or structure around there. So the octopus has to figure out, okay, how am I going to get from <laughs> point A to B without being detected by a predator? And so it will kind of make itself look like a rock, and it will move really slowly across the sand to trick the predator into thinking that it's it's a rock and not an octopus. I thought you meant that it was like covering itself with a rock, but you oh. meant like it's just turning itself into the rock. It is turning itself into a rock. Yes. <laughs> a little bit a little bit different than the coconut octopus where it uses the coconut halves or it can use shells as tools and it will carry them underneath its arms and what scientists call an awkward stilt walking <laughs> the octopus does and it moves itself along and when the octopus needs to hide or shield itself it will use these shells or coconuts to protect itself it's very silly to watch because i've seen them kind of like close themselves up in it and almost like roll along the yes. seafloor it's funny because it seems almost like they're taking inspiration from their snail cousins mm, and being like mm -hmm. mm, y'all had the right idea actually like y'all seem to have this figured out with the big tough part on your back let me just grab a coconut yes <laughs> i may not have an external shell but i'm going to carry this with me and make one if you can't make your own external shell store-bought is fine there you go <laughs> <laughs> so they just grab one. They're like, I'll be taking that. Thank you. A while back, we talked about the, the day octopus or the reef octopus, octopus cyania on an episode. And something, the funniest thing on earth to me was the way that they would hunt together with grouper or like other mm -hmm. sorts of predatory fish. But then if the predatory fish like kind of got out of line, the octopus would like, bam, like <laughs> sock him in the mouth. <laughs> Yes. No no free food here. Find your own. <laughs> They're like, hey, act right. Yes. Yes. Did you ever get to witness like octopuses like hunting together or having any sort of like alliances? So octopuses, I haven't seen any hunting together with, with other animals. I'd say it, it's more of maybe like a posse of fish following the octopuses around. And so when an octopus will go out and forage, usually I would see one to several fish following the octopus along. And those fish are waiting for a food item, a treat to like pop out. So usually the octopus is exploring the bottom with its arms and usually a crab might jump out of algae or a sandy bottom and once that crab jumps out, the fish actually may go in and grab it. And possibly that octopus lost its meal. 
And so, so the, the fish may take the food from the octopus, but also if you have a lot of fish following you, you're, the fish are blowing the octopus's cover from a predator. Oh, true. <laughs> oh, that's not good. Right? And so usually you'll, you'll see the octopus swat or punch the fish and say like, hey, like, knock it off. That's my meal or, Shoo, go away! You're blowing my cover um, <laughs> from a predator that could that could be around. That's true. Oh, I hadn't really thought of that because the the octopuses are really relying on stealth because they don't otherwise have like really anything physically built onto them to protect them. So if their cover's blown, that's it. Especially if the octopus is foraging during the day and their predators are visual predators, right? Oh, true. I guess that could be a a problematic uh, friendship. (laughs) Yes, yes. There's also been times when the fish will nip at the octopus's arms as well. So I don't... Personal space. Right? (laughs) You know, I I guess it goes goes both ways. I've also seen the octopus kick fish out of their home. Oh, no. (laughs) These are are fish that live, you know, in the sand. It could be like a a goby or a blunny, and they have a hole in the sand. And so this is specific to the Atlantic longarm octopus that I study. This is a sand-dwelling species. It actually can make its own hole or home in the sand by using its long arms. Or if you don't want to make your own home, you can just steal one. <laughs> and so I've I've seen this octopus actually kick a kick a fish out of its home and take over. And this oh. is a this is a pretty small octopus. So I like to call it small but mighty. The the size of this octopus, and remember the the mantle, the sack, you know, um, behind the octopus's head. That size or that length is about two to three inches. So it's little. Little octopus, yes. And that's the full adult size. So the mantle is two to three inches long. However, how it gets its name is it has extremely long arms. It can be five to seven times, their arms are five to seven times the length of their mantle. And that's what they use to dig the holes. But anyway, small mighty octopus um, (laughs) doesn't take anything from a fish and will kick a fish out of its home. That is so rude, but also I like this idea that octopuses are like, you know what, I uh, don't necessarily have my own uh, shelter or my own sort of defenses on my body, so instead I'll just use what's available to me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and because I've seen a lot of like animals that have like burrowing animals will mm-hmm. create these sort of like mutualistic relationships with with like shrimp, you know, like you see goby and shrimp where they have sort of an understanding with each other, like the shrimp might build the den and then the goby helps protect it and the shrimp lets the goby live there and stuff like that and the octopus is like, no, I'll just take it. <laughs> take the whole thing. Yep. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Maybe the sheer audacity just catches the goby off guard. They're like, can you believe that? He just did that. <laughs> well, don't nip at my arm then and we won't have this problem. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a, a lot of drama playing out on the reef. A yeah. high drama environment. <laughs> drama in the ocean. <laughs> in your experiences scuba diving and, and seeing them out in their element, out on their home field, has one ever done anything that was like really surprising to you that you were just like, what, what was that? Like something that kind of caught you off guard? Yes, a, f- a few things. Speaking of rocks, you know, and the octopus not necessarily turning itself into, into rocks. 
Octopuses, when they make their home or their den, usually they will collect shells or around their den to make the opening smaller. And so this is so predators can't follow the octopus into its den. And octopuses will also reconstruct their den. So think of it as you have a big living room, a big living space to relax in, but your door, the opening is really small. So it's not letting any predators come inside. So there was an octopus, a small octopus that was living in this opening in this this rock structure. And I was watching it and I was about to take a photo of it. And then I saw it grab a a shell and it just slid it directly over. It's it's op- like it was an actual door that it was sliding over. And of shut course, the door in your face. I was like, "You've got to be kidding me!" And of course, I didn't p- press record when I was supposed to, and so it then didn't happen again. And I was just like, "Wow, no one's going to believe me that this this happened." Like I've seen them kind of make their opening smaller, but this octopus just slid a shell over its door and and closed off. I'm just saying, if someone showed up at my door <laughs> with a camera pointed at me, I too I mean, would just shut the door right in their face. Fair, fair <laughs> enough. I can't be mad at the octopus. <laughs> that is a very relatable behavior. <laughs> right? And so I was like, all right, fair enough. And I let that octopus be. And I <laughs> swam along and, and found another octopus, you know, to to observe. And I see a lot of really cool behaviors that I don't necessarily know why the octopus is doing. And one of them being, um, again, back to the Atlantic longarm that I study, you know, it's it's probably one of my favorite octopuses. And that's why I I talk a lot about this animal, uh, because it's not well studied. And we have we have them in our in our backyard in our lagoon in South Florida. So I feel very lucky and fortunate to be able to dive and to learn more about this animal. So like mentioned, it has really long arms. And it actually stands up really, really tall. I call it the tripod stance. I think of it as a lifeguard lookout tower. So it will stand up really, really tall in the sand plains and it'll kind of look around. But sometimes it also raises its mantle. And so it will raise its mantle. Usually the mantle will stay kind of down uh, towards the sand or kind of horizontally straight out. This animal will raise its mantle all the way vertical directly up. So it's just like a long stick or like line in the water. The Eiffel Tower. (laughs) Yes, the Eiffel Tower. That is a better description. Yes, the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) And maybe I will now the kind of, I will use that as (laughs) to describe this new behavior. And it will move its mantle completely vertical, the Eiffel Tower, but it will go, it will sway it back and forth. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Just dancing. <laughs> just dancing. Having a little dancey dance. Got the wiggles. <laughs> Not much is known, but I definitely think it is another type of camouflage, probably masquerade or mimicry. It's looking like something else in the sand plane. I'm not sure if it's that, or it could be a mode of communication with another octopus. So I'm not really sure what's going on yet, Wild, but it's a really cool wild behavior. 
Oh, that's so cool. I'd be so excited to see that. I'd be like, what are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> Just having I... a little moment. <laughs> Just in a silly, goofy mood, I guess. Yeah, they're... <laughs> They're pretty goofy. I love watching them. I think that a lot of people really enjoy watching octopuses and looking at them in, in aquariums or so, not just because of their fascinating behavior, but also just because of how captivatingly beautiful they can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so the f- final category that we rate animals on, straightforward aesthetics. How nice is this animal to look at? What do you give octopuses out of 10 for aesthetics? 10 out of 10. <laughs> gotta be. It's got to be. They have such an alien beauty to them, don't they? They are, they're beautiful animals. And I think, you know, they, they've, they've got a bad name from previous stories about, you know, the kraken or octopuses being labeled as dangerous or malicious, just a sea monster. Exactly. And that is not an octopus. That's not how I see the octopus Mm -hmm. at all. And I just see them as these beautiful animals that... Mm have extraordinary behavior and probably one of my favorite things is their skin i like to call it the smart skin just (laughs) because it's able to change those colors and communicate or camouflage in different ways i've always been attracted i think i mentioned it earlier to brightly colored animals in the ocean yeah and there's no better animal than that than the octopus I recently saw this meme and a lot of my friends have sent me this this meme about Lisa Frank. Do you know <laughs> who Lisa Frank oh, yeah. is? The, I yeah. was born in 1995. So I was a child during sort of peak Lisa Frank design phase. So I was the target demographic for Lisa Frank, yes. The marine biologist. And then there's the image of Lisa Frank, the artist, that drew dolphins and sea creatures in these really bright, amazing colors. And I say, <laughs> yep, that was me. That was definitely me. I was a, I'm was a big fan of Lisa Frank and all the bright, vibrant colors that she draws animals in. And maybe dolphins aren't necessarily those colors, but I'm here to tell you that octopuses are all those beautiful colors. And this is because of um, one of the color-changing cells called chromatophores. So those are the, the pigmented cells that I think a lot of people are familiar with, with how octopuses change colors. You know, these pigmented cells are, you can think of them as balloons or sacs filled with pigments, colors such as orange, red, brown, yellow. And these sacs are attached to muscles and remember that big brain relays this information and says, hey, skin, I need you to change to be this color. So that information is relayed to the skin. The skin expands, can expand those different colored filled sacs to be orange, red, or blue, or it can make them smaller. So that's where those color changing abilities come in of the different browns, red, oranges that I described. But you're probably wondering, well, how do you get all those other colors of the rainbow that the octopus is able to do? And that's thanks to the different types of reflecting cells that are underneath the chromatophores in the octopus's skin. Those are called leucophores and iridophores. And that's where you get the shiny iridescent colors that we see in the octopus when those shine through the whites, pinks, blues, and greens. 
So yes, the octopus, I'd say, can achieve those Elisa Frank colors. And <laughs> they get a 10 out of 10 from me. It's very psychedelic looking. Yes. I feel like I've heard, uh, and this may be a myth that maybe you can bust. I don't know. Maybe it's true. I've heard that they their skin has like um, photoreceptors on it that helps them like actually sort of see like through their skin in a way almost. Am I in the right ballpark? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It would be more like simple eyes, not necessarily images, but but light, light and dark, like a simple eye. That's so wild. Like they're receiving so much information about the world around them, which makes sense if you're, it, it's different when you live in the ocean and you live in the water where you're kind of living in a more three dimensional uh, environment than if you're a land creature, you really only have to worry about things sort of to your left and right, <laughs> like front and back. Yes. But when you live yes. in the ocean, you have to kind of worry about an entire sphere uh, of yes. danger. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to say that octopuses have predators from all around. They have octopuses, you know, up in the sky, there's diving marine birds that predate on octopuses. There are fish in the water column that predate on octopuses and also marine mammals that predate on octopuses. And there's also benthic animals as well, like eels. Eels specialize in octopuses. So they are, you know, they've got that 360 degree vision because they've got to look all around, you know, and to make sure that they avoid those predators. They are under a lot of pressure Ooh. from all sides. And pressure forms a diamond. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> they are a diamond forged they by are. the pressures of living in the dangerous ocean. <laughs> Well, Chelsea, uh, before we wrap up for today, I'd love it if you could tell people uh, where they can follow along with your work. Please tell people about your work with uh, Octonation. Where can people go from here to keep up with more of the octopus world? Yes. So I do a social media post about cool octopus and cephalopod facts and my current research that I have going on on my Facebook page, that's Octogirl, and my Instagram page, The Octogirl. And I also do work with an octopus education nonprofit called Octonation. And so we write everything about octopus, cool facts. Uh, we write cool blogs about the latest research and discoveries being made. And we also do species profiles, which is really fun. So you can learn more about octopuses that you might have heard of and just want to learn more about, like the giant Pacific octopus or the blue ringed octopus or the lesser known octopuses that some of them, they don't even have a scientific name yet, like the hairy octopus. You can check out information <laughs> about, that, about that octopus on Octonation. Amazing. And I'll have links to everything in the episode description below. So people listening who are like, dang, I think I want to uh, join the Octopus Fan Club. Yes. Uh, can just scroll right down and click through and, and join the big happy octopus fan family. Chelsea, I can't thank you enough for your time today. It's been so fun. I, I'm always happy to learn about octopuses, especially when it's something like funky and wild and out of left field, because of course it is. I appreciate your time and your passion. I think your, your enthusiasm for octopuses is contagious. Thank you. If anybody listening wasn't already a huge fan of octopuses, which I kind of feel like if you turned on this podcast, you probably already kind of like octopuses. But uh, if you weren't already firmly entrenched in the in the fandom, welcome aboard. 
Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm sure you've noticed that I could talk for hours or maybe even days about octopuses, their adaptations, how cool they are, and hoping that everyone is now a fan of, of the octopus. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Chelsea. It's been a delight. We'll talk to you later. Alrighty. Bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope that our episode has felt like a friendly hug from eight wiggly arms. If you liked what you heard, I hope that you leave behind some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice. If you want to hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Discord. Links to everything will be in the episode description below. You can send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear about. Thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on their network, alongside the other wonderful shows like the ones that you heard promos for here today. You can check them out and learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. Finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. That is all for today. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.